0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a surprising new fashion among the cultural elites and the hard-driving leaders in our society. That new fashion, that popular new trend is sleep. You hear it from all different corners of society now. Ariana Huffington, she's the journalist and web mogul. She wrote this book that came out a year or so ago called The Sleep Revolution. And Jeff Bezos, the billionaire guy in charge of Amazon, probably in charge of half the world now, he says that he has to have eight hours of sleep a night. Which, I mean, that's not that big of a deal for most of us, right? But for a guy like that to say, I need my eight hours, you think, okay. And... Another guy by the name of Michael Hyatt, a leadership expert, he says a day doesn't pass where he doesn't take a nap. In all of these different regions, among the the hard-driving leaders of our culture today, they're saying, sleep is what we need. But there's a catch. See, with all of this popularity of sleep, all of a sudden, it's not just sleep as a good gift of God. It's not sleep as an opportunity to recognize that we are finite, limited creatures, and sometimes we've just got to say, you know what, I've done all I can do, I need to rest. No, it's sleep as a secret to achieving more. It's become a $32 billion a year industry to maximize, or as people nowadays say, to hack your sleep so that in the midst of all of your naps and all of your resting, you might become more productive. Uh, An essayist by the name of Eve Fairbanks, she says, we want to sleep more now, not because we value sleep more on its own terms, but because we are so fixated on productivity. I mean, you think about even a nap, we have to call it a power nap. That's the culture that we live in. That's the contagion that infects our society. We have this insatiable addiction to achievement. And I don't know what could emphasize it more than the fact that even when we talk about sleep, it has to be in the context of being more productive, This addiction to achievement just keeps us going and going and going. And it doesn't even matter matter whether or not you happen to be employed right now. You might be retired and still think, you know what, for this to be a successful day, I've got to check off a lot of my to-do list, right? I've got to get those boxes checked. I've got to get out there. I've got to be busy to show the world, if not myself, I matter. With that anxious addiction to achievement. But in today's gospel, we have the antidote to that addiction. Now in that story that we heard, the gospel story that we heard, there's a lot that's impressive about it. For one thing, I mean, if you are running cable news today, you might start with, boom, controversy between Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist. Will he be baptized or not? So you've got the controversy there. Then when he finally submits to it, consents to it, you've got the heavens opening up and there is the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. There's so much that's fascinating and compelling about this story. But for me, the thing that might be the most impressive of all is when it happens. I don't mean the time of day or the time of year, but when it happens in Jesus' own life. He's about 30 years old when he's baptized. And this is kind of his coming out party, right? But isn't it interesting to notice, to this point, at least as far as the Gospels record it, Jesus hasn't achieved anything that's especially remarkable. He was born, we know all about that, right? We made a big deal about that at Christmas. People were trying to kill him, that wasn't really anything that he did per se, but that's still interesting. He received the Magi, got some gifts. Last week we heard about when he was 12. He went to the temple, got lost. It was a big to do with his parents. Other than that, we don't really have any record of him doing anything especially remarkable or impressive to this point. And even here at his coming out party, at his inauguration at the Jordan River, there's a lot about this that doesn't look like it's especially impressive. Again, here Jesus comes, and he confounds his cousin, John the Baptist. He gets down into the river, and why is he being baptized at all? This is Jesus, supposedly the sinless Son of God. Now he's in there swimming with sinners. What is going on here? This isn't exactly a resume builder for the would-be Christ and King of all creation. But then that voice booms out, spoken over Jesus there. The heavens are open, the Holy Spirit comes down. Then the voice of God the Father who says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's park there for just a second. Before Jesus does anything that looks attractive or compelling in the eyes of the world, before he goes toe-to-toe with Satan and beats him in that temptation out when he's out in the desert, before Jesus heals people, before he, he goes and he, he walks on the water, before he calms the seas, before he feeds 5,000 people, before Jesus brings his friend Lazarus back to life, before Jesus does any of those amazing and incredible feats that we think of when we think about who our Lord is and what he has done for us, before any of that happens... This voice from the Father speaks over him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus has achieved anything, the Father's pleasure already rests on him. And an author by the name of Tish Warren, to whom I I owe this insight, she writes this. She says, Jesus is eternally beloved by the Father. His every activity unfurls from his identity as the beloved. He loved others, healed others, preached, taught, rebuked, and redeemed. Not in order to gain the Father's approval but out of his rooted certainty in the Father's love. Out of his rooted certainty in the Father's love. Jesus is the beloved before anything else happens. And the same is true for you and for me. In our small catechism, this is hinted at in in kind of a subtle way. It's one of those parts of the catechism that we don't always really focus on or look at, that section on the daily prayers in the back of the catechism. And in that section, Martin Luther has a morning prayer. And it says this, it says, In the morning, when you wake up, make the sign of the cross and say, In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Let's step back and just think for a second, as Luther is imagining it, as he writes that, what's happening? You wake up in the morning, and what are you like? All bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Or you got bedhead, bad breath, bedraggled, right? You're still not quite awake. You know that moment when you first wake up, and you're like, where am I, and what is happening? Now, some of you, some of you wake up with a smile on your face, and you're like, I'm just glad that I'm alive for another day, and that's awesome. But even for those of you who, who are morning people, for each and every one of us, when we first wake up in the morning, let's be honest, we're not our best selves, right? You're terrified at the thought that you're going to have to meet or greet anybody, maybe even your spouse, before you're able to take a shower and get a cup of coffee, right? But in that moment, Luther says, that's when you need to make that sign of the cross, And speak that name of the triune God. Why? Because in that moment, before you have done anything, when you are not your best self, that especially is when you need to remember that you are beloved. That you have been claimed by the triune name of God who has set it upon you. To remember in that moment that you belong to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, of course, Luther is also gesturing at or recalling the gift of holy baptism. That time and place when God laid claim on you, even as it was that time when he made that unqualified affirmation of his son Jesus. Before, for many of us, before we could even talk or walk or do anything of consequence other than be cute, we were baptized. We were beloved. This is the significance, especially, of infant baptism. Now, I realize not all of us were baptized as infants. Perhaps some of us haven't even been baptized yet. But I say this a lot. Every baptism is ultimately an infant baptism. Every baptism is an infant baptism. By which I mean, every single one of us, whenever we come to the font or are brought to the font, to those holy waters, In that time and in that moment, we come with empty hands, offering nothing to God and receiving everything from him. God takes us when we can't do anything but, you know, mess ourselves and make a lot of noise. And God says, you are beloved by me. He spoke over you at your baptism, even as he spoke over Jesus at his. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And don't lose sight of that second part of it. With whom I am well pleased, not with whom I put up with, right? Not with whom, you know, I kind of like because I've forgiven them, with whom I delight. God doesn't just love you, he likes you, see. He actually enjoys you, delights in your presence. You are beloved before anything else. And that wasn't just a moment, sort of at the beginning of your Christian life. You say, okay, grace got me in the door. God's love first got me into the church and into the the company of Christ. But now, day by day, I got to kind of earn my keep, okay? I got to show I'm worth it, that He made a good decision in bringing me into the kingdom of God. No. You were beloved before you could do a single thing and God laid claim of you. And each and every day when you wake up with those crusties in your eyes and with the bedhead and bedraggled and and wondering, what am I going to do today? You are beloved before you accomplish anything of consequence each and every day. And you are beloved after you make a miserable mess of the day or when you didn't get a single box checked on your to-do list. Still, you are beloved before and after when you are stumbling and bumbling through your day and making a mess of things and thinking, Lord, how could you still love me? I keep going back to the same thing. I'm still struggling with these same sins. Am I still your beloved? And he says, Oh, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. You are beloved before and apart from and after anything that you might be able to give to God or fail to give to God, you're His. I don't know about you, but I tend to forget this a fair bit. Like every day, basically. This is why we have to have worship at least every Sunday, right? So that we can be continually reminded of this. But this is so easily, this reality so easily seeps out of our souls and out of our conscious awareness, our our belovedness by God. And immediately we can lapse back into that addiction to achievement and try to acquire some kind of self-made belovedness before God. In light of that, and for my own sake and also for yours, I want to give you a little prescription. And I hesitate to do this. I hesitate to do this. But I'm, I'm going to give you a little prescription here. I am a doctor, after all. You remember a number of years back when there were those uh, bracelets and necklaces that were all over the place, the WWJD ones, okay? A lot of you probably had one, I had one. What would Jesus do? And there's a lot of good about that, right? The idea was try to think through how would the Lord respond to these kinds of, of situations. I think it's good. There was also definitely a legalistic bent to it. There was part of me that always wanted to say, well, why don't you go walk on water today then? What would Jesus do, all right? More important is what Jesus did than what would Jesus do. But be that as it may, be that as it may, when people would talk about that WWJD, they would tend to always focus on the remarkable, exceptional, impressive things that Jesus did the incredible feats of kindness, the mercy that he showed, and all of that is wonderful and worthy for us to imitate as best as we are able to by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there is one, to me, one exceptional thing that all of the gospel writers did well to include in their accounts one part of Jesus' life and ministry that you never would hear the WWJD thing talk about. And that is that Jesus liked a good nap. And it wasn't a power nap. I mean, he's passed out in the boat. They think that it's, it's sinking. Jesus, what's happening? Are you going to help us? And he's like, guys, chill, okay? Be still, peace. The water's quiet down. Jesus often pulls apart from the crowds in order to pray, in order to rest in the presence of the Father. My prescription for you is this. Sometimes, many times, It's okay to take a nap, to recognize, I I can't do this. I'm confused. I'm struggling. This is hard. But in that moment, to realize and to remember, I'm beloved before anything I do. I'm beloved after all of my failures. That's not to neglect or to ignore you've got all kinds of duties, important things as part of your vocation that you need to handle. Yes, yes, yes. But never forget this, that you are beloved before any of it. And you have my permission, indeed my prescription. Take a nap and remember, I am beloved. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to sing.